Today on the program, we have Ken Avis, who is a great bloke from the UK. In bands and playing venues, started at the age of about 16. I was really 26 before I had a real job. He has tons of advice, has a long career in music, has seen it all, and you should really tune in if you're an aspiring artist uh, that wants to know more about how to not only create the music that you want to create, but also how do you market and get your music out there for people that are actually going to going to pay for it and listen to it. The band uh, is called Virono, and we do what we refer to as world jazz. It's jazz, but it's not lengthy, lengthy solos. It... One of my favorite compliments that I get is when somebody comes up at the end of a show and says, you know, I didn't even think I liked jazz. I didn't want to come to this tonight, but I like you. This is Devin Gallagher, host of Media on the Radio, and thanks for listening. You grew up in the UK, and from what I know about you, um, the you started playing music very early in life. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and maybe how you even were attracted to music in the first place? Yeah, it's, it's timely because this is the 50th anniversary of Rubber Soul, the Beatles album, uh, coming out. And I think I was about six when that came out. And uh, my brother was going into town and he said, let me take your pocket money and I'll get you a record. And he actually came back with the Beatles' Rubber Soul album. But inevitably, I fell in love with that album and with the harmonies. I didn't even know what harmonies were. It was just a sound to me. It was years later that I discovered there were multiple voices singing. So that was my first attraction. My brother had a guitar, which he never played. Um, and when I was about nine or ten, I said, Dad, Dad, can I get a guitar? Will you get me a guitar for Christmas for my birthday? No, your brother had one. He never picked it up. You know, I'm not going to waste money on a guitar for you. But eventually they did get me a guitar, so I started lessons when I was 10 with a big band jazz player and used to play in, in the big bands um, really from the age of about 14 or 15. I did a couple of years while I was at school playing in big bands. But I'd actually moved to a holiday resort town by then, um, which was just full of entertainment and entertainment val uh, venues. My parents owned a little guest house with a bar, and so I was this precocious 15-year-old playing guitar and singing songs in the bar at night and getting tips off the old ladies and things like that. So that's how I got into it. And then I made a big mistake at the age of about 15 or 16 and stopped taking the lessons because I wanted an electric guitar and I wanted to be in a band. And... Uh, and that was when I started the, the band's big mistake because I really flatlined my musical development at that point. But I did get a lot of experience. Um, we were traveling um, up and down the UK, playing at the weekends while I was still at school. And of course, that became so seductive and the only thing I would possibly want to do. And so rather than thinking of going to university, I just kept doing music. Um, when I was 18 and uh, got involved not just as a performer, but uh, I created a music agency with a friend, totally illegally because you had to be 21 to get a music agency's license in the UK at that stage. So we just lied about our age and we created this uh, music agency 
which was managing some bands and it was booking some venues. We did a little bit of comedy. Even back then, there was a little bit of comedy we put on as well. And, and so I was completely immersed at that stage in, in music. Where does it go from there after 18? Punk happened in 1976. And until punk happened, we were doing quite nicely. You know, I think I bought my first uh, house when I was about 20 based upon the money we'd made from promoting bands. We had a couple of very lucky breaks where we'd have a band for a series of shows and suddenly they got a number one hit and we made some significant money. But then when punk happened in Britain, that was it. Everything else died completely. Careers died overnight. So after a few attempts to do the punk thing, which I never really got, um, we decided to fold up the agency and go to plan B. And plan B was to go to university because, again, of course, in England, not only do you not pay for your education in those days, but the government would give me money to go to university. So I went off down to Brighton in the south coast and... Um, I've always referred to it as my rock and roll government-sponsored apprenticeship <laughs> because basically I was playing in bands all the time down there and scraping through school. And uh, What did you study? Great. I studied urban development in uh, the University of Sussex. And then because I, I, it was such an easy gig, I saw there was an opportunity to do a PhD and the government would pay me even more to do that because it was at the London School of Economics. So I went to London straight away and I got the London extra allowance to pay for housing and I was a mature student by then so they gave me more money as well so it was great I was a rock and roll apprentice there as well <laughs> it was just to keep off the dole to be honest with you to keep off the unemployment benefit it paid better than the unemployment benefit and uh, it seemed to be going well and I was playing with interesting bands all the time so I've, I've been really lucky um, when I was at high school equivalent of American high school um, in my class at school, we had a couple of people who went on to become famous who I would be playing with all the time. Dave Ball from the band Soft Cell, who had the big hit with Tainted Love. And the guy from the Pet Shop Boys as well were both in my class at school and played in the big band with me. So I knew people like that from early days and was seeing what they were doing. Even though my interest was always in blues and American music, you know, rather than the synthesizer stuff of the time and definitely not the punk things of the time either. <laughs> do you have, um, can, looking back in those formative years, do, do you see the actual collaboration with those people as being what your biggest education was? Or was there a mentor that you can look back and, and think about as uh, somebody that really got your, you know, got you developing in the right way? I wish I'd stuck with the guitar teacher. I didn't realize what a Jemmy was at the time, coming from that big band jazz side. But there wasn't a mentor as such. For me, it was it was the experience of actually just putting myself out there and doing it. The very first time I put on a big event, I thought I was going to die. I, I, th I thought I was going to have a heart attack. You know, there was like a thousand pounds of my own money at stake. And there was this massive contract that they'd sent me talking about things like three-phase electricity, which to this day I don't know what it is, but they said they required it, otherwise the contract was void. And uh, it was just being there in that situation and thinking, wow, I survived it. I'm still alive. I'm still here. Um, and it gives you an, en an enormous amount of confidence when you just put yourself out there and do it and try it and... I won't even say succeed, but succeed in not dying is the key thing. 
and, and seeing other people who you know do it as well, you know, to see Dave Ball on the front page of the New Musical Express with eye makeup on in Soft Cell was like, what? How did that happen? So it kind of did expand your thinking a little bit more, but there wasn't so much a mentor at any stage in it. It was it was self-learning. From being around those people that, that then become on the cover of a magazine, what would you say about uh, music as a commodity or, or even um, the... The personality is is a product uh, that you're selling as opposed to the music that you're creating. Did that portion of it turn you off? Or, or at least you didn't want to get into the punk scene because you weren't interested in punk. But were you able to kind of see music as, as a something that you can buy and sell? Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it makes sense. And I think at the time I was turned off by it. I, I was looking for the authenticity of American music. I was listening to early blues music, I was listening to um, soul, Motown, that kind of stuff, which to me had an authenticity. Of course, the, it was also a product in one way or the other. Uh, but at the time, I was turned off by the, the gloss and so on. I kind of feel now, in the way that I do music now, and the, the fact that you, you've got to be an indie now, in reality, you've got to gris, grasp all of that... Um, opportunity to do promotion and marketing and you've really got to run with that otherwise you might as well just sit in your bedroom playing on your own all the time but you know most of my time now as a professional full-time musician is spent behind a computer doing promotion for shows uh, database in venues um, it's not sitting there being creative um, and I think that's the reality for anybody who's making a mark in music now I don't even necessarily think it's a bad thing because I've got the control over that too. But it's a lot more of that kind of work. And yeah, you've got to push stuff on uh, on the media and on social media all, all the time. We were just kind of talking about your college days and in your formative years. How long was that time for you where you were touring and you were getting paid professionally as and you were, you know, filling, filling, filling um, venues, and, and you were really doing it. In bands and playing venues started at the age of about 16, and I kept doing that full-time with the agency to the age of 21. That's when I moved to university, but I continued to play in bands all the way through the university and the PhD program. So I was really 26 before I had a real job, and that was a strange thing thing you know I'd finished the PhD and I thought well what do I do next and I needed to find some income or go on the dole and uh, as I say the dole would have been a, a pay cut compared to university so um, so that's when I got a job and it turned out you know it wasn't such a bad job either so uh, you get pretty obsessed in if you find if you're lucky enough to find a good interesting job which I was um, but I still continued to play right the way through my entire wage slave days. The wage slave days, that could be an album title. <laughs> <laughs> so what would you say, uh, did you like the idea of the of the different pace of a, of a regular job, we'll call it, and then the freedom of doing, you know, punt clocking out and doing the music on the side? If I was to think about it at the time, I would have always said, really, I want to be a rock star. Really, I want to just do music all the time. But stuff happens and you find yourself, you know, married and with kids and, you know, your life's not that bad anyway. And you, you look after them as the first priority. Uh, and it was never so bad to 
only be able to do the weekend warrior guitar playing and so on. I don't mind that at all. It's interesting. One of the things I do at the moment is um, I had the opportunity to be a mentor to the young artists in residence at the Strathmore. Fantastic musicians, uh, highly trained in many cases, you know, PhD, master's degrees in their instruments in some cases. Um, And they've got that challenge sometimes of being the sideman. A few of them have said to me in the past, I would really like to go out with my own band under my own name. Uh, But really, I'm a sideman. I'm hired for the gig. I'm a sax player and I play this gig. And I'm lucky I'm playing six nights a week and I'm making an okay living. But I'd really like it to be under my own name. And then when they do actually grasp that and, and create their own quartet or quintet and start to play, they realize how demanding, I think, the, the promotion aspects of it are mm. and the amount of time you've got to put into that and into running a band. Uh, and you've got to pay the band, unless it's a real garage band ethos, you've got to pay the band, whether 20 people show up or 200 people show up at your at your show. And it's, it's a big liability. Um, and it gets in the way of what they do to earn money, which has been the session man and the, the gig player. Mm. So I think for, for a lot of them, I find them starting something, but not really leaping out of their session world full time. Mm. Um, it, it is a challenging thing to do. That's interesting. I, I use the term a lot of raising to the level of your incompetence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because, uh, and I, I struggle with this too, and, and it's the idea of, you know, you develop this skill over 10 years of, of being, you know, you have a PhD, for example, some of those people that you were mentioning have a PhD in their instrument and they're, they're masters at it. And then when in, they go out on their own, the work that they're actually doing is is logistics and things like that that they have no experience in to, to make a go at it, you know, unless they have some real support behind them. Um, but in terms, it sounds like you have kind of struck a balance with that and the idea of making music that's that's um, has a market, but is, you're doing it in an indie way. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I think one aspect of it that we're very fortunate is that the core trio of the band, we never entered into this to make money. Um, it kind of happened along the way. Can you talk uh, about the band as well? Too, yeah, so kinda... the band uh, is called Virono, and we do what we refer to as world jazz. It's jazz, but it's not lengthy, lengthy solos. It, it's two acoustic guitars, a fantastic vocalist who's so good I married her, Lynn Virono. And uh, I do some backing vocals. So it's not, we, d- we do music from uh, Brazil, from France. Lynn sings in, Itali- in Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English. French is her first language. And so in a place like DC, it's great with the international audience here. It fits perfectly. Um, and uh, all three of us were actually working at the World Bank. Uh, Lynn and I both quit the job to do this full time. David, the uh, other guitar player, is still there because he loves being an economist. He really likes to be an economist and he manages to fit the gigs in, but he doesn't do the promotional work and so on. He leaves that to us and he turns up at nearly every single gig he possibly can, which is great. Um, but we actually set off to do a recording. We had an ambition. Our ambition was initially to um, to get lots of gigs at wineries, all these wineries in Virginia. We thought, what would be better than playing music for a couple of hours and drinking wine? I, 
it was a very modest ambition. And we said, okay, we, let's record an album. We need an album as our calling card to get these simple gigs. We set ourselves a budget of about $6,000, absolute maximum to record the album, and went into a studio locally, recording arts um, in Merrifield. And uh, it instantly started to sound better than we thought it was going to sound. Um and pretty soon the budget disappeared, you know, pretty soon we were spending more and more and more. And, you know, I think it cost us double the 6000 to make the actual recording and editing and mastering. Um, I'm giving you nuts and bolts. I have no secrets about money. I always tell people, you know, the more musicians share about this kind sure. of topic. Yeah, and that's that's something that I actually do as well or trying to do on this show as well mm. because it's the real world of things that really helps gives people a perspective perspective on it yeah when you're a musician there are so many businesses trying to take money off you that if we actually speak openly and honestly about this we're helping each other to avoid being ripped off um so yeah the the, the actual cost of recording was double the six thousand because we brought in more instruments more musicians and then we thought damn this really is good um so then it was the photo shoots and the publicist and a nice booklet to go inside the CD, which costs more and shrink wrap the CD and put it on nice eco paper with a plastic insert. And before we were done and, and then it was so good, we went, wow, we don't want to just put this on WPFW locally. And we're so lucky to have the resource of a jazz radio station there. Um, could we release this nationally? So that's a whole other level of, of cost. Um, so when all was said and done with the total cost of putting everything together, we could definitely have bought a pretty nice brand new car for the price of the album. It's, it was partly our inefficiency and partly our mistakes, but it cost money to do it to that level. And luckily we had the money to do it to that level. Um, and the album then went to number eight on the US World Music Chart. Wow. So it was kind of worth the investment in a way. It, it really put the wind in our sails as a band. And what year was this? That would have been 2011, 2000, okay. yeah. Um, so I think that was a confidence boost more than anything. It's not like we suddenly joined the 1% or something like that. You know, the, the returns were not that great. Um, and then we did another album a year later, which was very ambitious, the Jazz Samba Project, which became an album, it became a movie, it became uh, a series of articles that I was writing uh, for magazines in the UK and the US. It even became a two-week-long festival of Brazilian jazz film workshops at the Strathmore. I mean, it became enormous. Uh, and that went to number four on the US jazz chart. And it was a very local thing because we'd suddenly realized that uh, the album Jazz Samba had been recorded by Charlie Bird, a local D.C. guitarist, exactly 50 years earlier in a Washington, D.C. church mm. with three microphones. And then that album had introduced Brazilian bossa nova to the world. It was on the, on the U.S. pop chart at number one for something like 13 weeks in wow. 1962. It was, you know, went into the top 10 in the UK and all over the world. So it was it was a bit of a mission um, to do that album. And it just expanded massively. So, again, that that's something which got us um, some attention, some press. And we pushed it as much as we could. But I don't want to suggest to people, you know, that all of a sudden 
There are festival organisers and managers and agents coming to you because they don't. Until, until they know they can make money out of you, they really don't come to you. You're still doing it yourself. You're still pushing for every gig. Well, it's interesting that you... Because what I find, too, is some people have that vision of, you know, of getting on the top of the charts. Um, but it's funny to hear that you all you really wanted to do was was drink some wine and, and play some music locally. Still is, really. <laughs> yeah. If you could just get back there. Yeah. Um, but what, what do you think that was that, that kind of caused that trajectory to happen? If you can come up with a, a reason. You know, I think what we're doing is extremely appealing. One of my favorite compliments that I get is, and it's happened a few times at shows, is when somebody comes up at the end of a show and says, you know, I didn't even think I liked jazz. I didn't want to come to this tonight, but I like you. And, you know, inevitably we're in that little niche where we're not quite jazz, but we're not quite anything else either. So we've been playing, we played at the Tacoma Folk Festival. We've played at the Tacoma Park Jazz Festival. (laughs) Nobody's quite sure. And it, it works against you a little bit, you know, because there are places that say, oh, you know, you're just simply not jazzy enough. But I think for us, it's worked well. I think we're blessed by fantastic vocals. I think Lynn's vocals are stupendously world-class, and I would encourage anybody I listened, to listen. I listen to some of the music. It is it is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Just and, the whole... And I hear what you're saying, because I did listen to some of it. And I, not to say I don't like jazz, but... I, you know, I, I don't appreciate it as much as, as the next person. And I feel like maybe because there is a little bit too much improv at some points. And, you know, it's hard to f- follow sometimes for, for someone that doesn't study the stuff and doesn't, you know, you know follow it as a, as a trend. But um, I know exactly what you're saying. It can, it can be pretty boring. Yeah. When you go to see live a very jazzy jazz, jazz, jazz. I'm sorry, folks, if you're jazz players who are friends of mine. But sometimes you'll go and see a, a jazz band live and it's be okay, now it's the saxophone player's solo, now it's the drummer's solo, now it's the bass player's solo. Mm-hmm. Now let's do that all over again for the next song. And and I've always, I mean, I've just always been, par- been partial to soul and blues music to start. So it's, you know, and that's informed a lot of other music that we have out there. But, um, but I think what's interesting is your influence has definitely seen that you've, you have that experience of of all of those years and the, the combined experience with, with the rest of your band, the nuances that you can kind of pull from, you know, from jazz or from blues, and you can definitely feel that, or even international music that you're kind of, you can definitely feel that those, uh, that it's intelligently designed kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and what would you say to, and you, you had said earlier that this was not a project that, that no one, no one, entered into this agreement or this partnership to, tr- to make money. It was to make music. Um, that's hard to find. <laughs> and that's hard to find, uh, I believe, that when people say that, they actually mean it. Um, so what, is, what would you say about the group itself and how, how you guys collaborate? It's fantastic. Well, first of all, it is hard to find, as you say, and there are some fantastic jazz vocalists in D.C. And they have the challenge of not having their own band and they buy the musicians for the gig. Fantastic musicians, but they're not musicians who know their material, 
who play it and engage with the audience at the same time. They may be reading from charts. Um, it might be the first time they've played it. They're brilliant musicians to do that, but it's not got that engagement. And that's something we have. We don't read from charts. We can. David especially, he can read from charts all day. But um, we've, we work as a band. We chose music that appealed to us. You'll hear a lot of Brazilian jazz on our albums. And until I met David, I'd never played that Brazilian style. I'd always said to myself, God, I love the sound of that. Maybe one day if I retire, I'll have time to learn how to do it. But David um, grew up from the age of about five. He's American. He's the only American in the band. Uh, from the age of about five, he was in uh, Brazil, where his father was teaching at the university. And, and David fell in love with that sound of the Brazilian acoustic guitar. Lynn's the French-Canadian, so she's brought in the French influences. Um, and so we've really, we're all playing music that we've brought together and we all have a consensus that we like it. For someone starting off in, in music, what would you say is kind of the most important part? I mean, say they have real talent. Say starting with that, which is, you know, probably step one is to develop yourself as an artist. Um, but in terms of that indie marketing What's kind of the biggest bang for the buck? Where should they put their money or their time or their resources? Number one, before you even talk to the money issue, is don't be a jerk. That's number one, you know? If somebody writes to you or phones you, call back or write back fast. Uh, don't badmouth everybody. You know, be a nice person to work with. That's number one. And it seems to be not intuitive to some people. But the ones who succeed, it's intuitive to them and it's a joy and you want to call them and have them play with you and so on. That's the first thing. Bang for the book, the beauty of... Well, for, you've got to have a CD. Um, some people will say, yeah, but it's all online now. Can't we just do downloads? You're not going to get taken terribly seriously. It depends how seriously you want to be taken. Uh, the CD, the physical CD is still important. Uh, it's not the only thing, but it's important. You've got to have, I feel, a website. Uh, a lot of bands, particularly on the indie side, don't have a real website. They use Bandcamp or um, Facebook or, or different things. And again, it's a question of how seriously do you want to be taken. If, you, if you're doing something just locally and your audience is your friends, that's fine. But I really feel it's worth having a website. And it's not terribly expensive. It's, what, $15 a month or something once you've got it up there um ideally you want a video and that's tough that's really hard it's hard enough to record music but to record music and look good while you're doing it is a whole different kettle of fish um so video is the third part of it and uh and some cheap promotional materials from Vistaprint. Vistaprint does quality... This is not an advert, can I say this? Mm -hmm. But Vistaprint does very easy to manipulate stuff online, very inexpensive, very good quality, very fast. And so you need some business cards, you need some posters, you need thank you cards to send to venues and to radio DJs who've been kind enough to play your music or interview you and things like that. Um, that's kind of the package, that's the kit that if I was working with young up-and-coming musicians, I said, look, put $200 aside to, to get the promo and the website up and running. 
do the recording. You don't have to spend the 30000 we ended up spending. Uh, you really don't. Um, we seem to be incapable of getting it for less personally, but uh, but I'm hearing great albums that are recorded for 6000 mm-hmm. So, And, you know, people can now with, with Kickstarter and things like that, if people have real talent or real real communities that they build around they can raise that money relatively easy easily if they're if they're you know if they're nice to people as you said yeah <laughs> yeah but but what what i want to know about too from your perspective is say somebody has a lot of talent you also need something new i think you're absolutely right you know there needs to be some originality whether it's in the musical style or the delivery or the lyrical content and you do often see people who are just strumming away and you're thinking, well, I've heard this a hundred times before. So I think to actually develop something that's unique to you and which communicates to an audience is important. I think that communication to an audience is strangely not sufficiently focused on by people who get on a stage. I have a pet peeve, for instance, when you go to the shows, the kind of free public shows, and you see bands where there's a all the blokes were in baseball caps and shorts and sandals. I mean, I know it's hot here in the summer, but do me a favor. You know, you're supposed to be a band. There's, there's got to be some elevation there. Or something. You want people to admire what you're doing, to enjoy what you're doing. Um, make some kind of a, a statement in, in everything you're presenting because people are looking at you. Somebody pointed out to me recently that if you think back to concerts you've seen, you might not remember all the songs that were played, but you'll probably remember what the musicians said to the audience. And when I thought about that, I thought, yeah, wow, I could go- I th- could think back 20 years and still remember what an artist said on stage, but not necessarily the set list. Mm-hmm. So to communicate to an audience is such a big deal. And we, we just did a show, two shows on Tuesday night at Blues Alley. It was great because both shows sold out. Another great thing about DC is there was a lot of musicians in the audience. It's a very supportive scene here, and I love that. Um, But I've got to say, as well as the music sounding great, thanks to Blues Alley doing the best they can with us as as well as what we do, um, it was a show. We we put on an entertaining show. It's not contrived. We're actually just enjoying ourselves but we are engaging with the audience from start to finish and we think about the set order and taking them through a journey. Um, and there's humor. If something happens in the room, we'll stop the show to pick up what's going on in the room. Um, and everybody gets into that. Everybody enjoys it. It's not, I don't think it's gimmicky. It's just that's the way we are. And audiences like it. And, and thank goodness. <laughs> that's awesome. So just to finish out, can you talk a little bit about your new radio show that you've recently just launched in the last couple of weeks? In the jazz world, we're so lucky to have WPFW. If I was a folk singer or work or an indie performer, you know, doing alternative music, there's no platform. There's nothing. Because I'm jazz, we have capitalbop.com, which is the blog, an excellent blog. We have WPFW. We have the museums putting on jazz music. We have the restaurants if you want to make some money uh, and the weddings and the corporate stuff. We have have so much. Um, And I write for magazines, typically jazz reviews, but I listen to all kinds of music and I would love to be writing reviews of everybody else as well, but there's no outlet for it here. Uh, And so 
when we saw the opportunity to start a radio program on WERA, I thought, well, this is the perfect opportunity. This this allows us to be all genre, um, to put on all kinds of music and to give those musicians the platform that WPFW has given to us for the past few years. Wow, that's great. And oh, when we bumped on the street, we bumped into a, one of the best jazz singers in DC as we were coming in. So it wasn't scheduled, but we said, this was Sharon, Sharon Clark. And we said, hey, Sharon, are you available? Do you want to come and do an interview now? So she did a quick interview and we were playing mainstream jazz at the opening. Um, so we mixed up the whole thing and that's what we want to keep doing. And I hope people will have equally broad tastes or forgive us if we play something they don't like because something else is going to come up. That's right. And can you tell people where they can listen and what time? They can listen on WERA 96.7 LP FM uh, in Arlington, Virginia uh, from noon till 1 p.m. on Thursdays. It's, and it's live streamed as well, it, so they can. I'm glad you mentioned that. It can, is live streamed <laughs> on wra.fm, and it even gets we uploaded. It takes us about 24 hours, but we upload, so it's there for uh, forever for you to download. Great, perfect. Well, thanks so much, Ken, for coming on. I really appreciate your your stories. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Should we do part two? Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> at some point, there's a lot more to talk about. Media on the Radio is recorded at Arlington Independent Media. For more information, visit arlingtonmedia.org. A lot of people have been giving me great feedback through email and in person, and I really appreciate it. But if you can just go to the iTunes page, find Media on the Radio, and just give us four or five stars or six or how many ever you know that they have, whichever the top number is, and then write a little description about why and how Media on the Radio has helped you in your life. It's changed your life, and it's one of the best podcasts, not only on the topic of media, but just in life. So, great. Thanks.